Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, creativity, pop culture, just about everything, because in the end, it's always an ad for something else. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And with me this week, got a great panel, as always, our creative editor, Tim Nudd. Tim, how are you doing? Did you have a good uh, Thanksgiving? Uh, very nice, David. How about yourself? Ah, it's been it's been good. Pretty mellow here. And uh, Lauren Johnson, a staff writer covering technology. Lauren, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And another returning guest, Jason Lynch, a staff writer covering the TV industry. Jason, welcome back. Hey there, David. Great to be back. Today on the podcast, we're going to dig into Adweek's annual hot list, uh, which features the year's most interesting tech personality brands, a real passel of interesting treats. And we're also going to recap Black Friday and Cyber Monday and uh, how all those numbers came out. And we're going to see how AT&T is luring cord cutters. And uh, then we're going to hear about which ads are actually worth watching this week. But first the news. So uh, along with Thanksgiving, we got, of course, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And this year, Cyber Monday really lived up to its name. According to a story from Chris Heine, our uh, tech editor, we, uh, we're seeing some pretty amazing numbers in terms of online sales. Uh, Cyber Monday had $3.45 billion in sales per Adobe. That's a 12% increase year over year. Uh, and it's more than Black Friday, which uh, Black Friday came in at $3.34 billion, so not much less than Cyber Monday. But uh, good to see Cyber Monday living up to the moniker. I think there's always been a lot of debate about whether it was a real event or just kind of a creation meant to uh, encourage people to shop online. Uh, but this year, definitely seemed like the real deal. Uh, this really has been a tremendous November for e-commerce, uh, $39.97 billion in online sales, so basically $40 billion in online sales. That's up about 7.6% uh, compared to last year, uh, again, according to a great story uh, from Chris Heine. Uh, so feel free to check out adweek.com for lots more details. Uh, but I'm curious, for our panelists, did you guys participate in either Black Friday or uh, Cyber Monday? Lauren, did you uh, do any, any hot online shopping or wait in any lines? Yeah, I did a little... Uh... Um, 
shopping actually more in store over the weekend. But I think what was really interesting is you saw, you know, a couple of years ago, it was really Black Friday or Cyber Monday. And now you're really seeing that it's turned into like a week long shop uh, shop extravaganza <laughs> in terms of a lot of deals even starting like Wednesday night and going through Monday. And then it seems like those even extend into the just bigger holiday shopping. Um, so yes, I noticed a lot, a lot of uh, shopping sales that just kind of seem to be ongoing. What about you, Jason? Did you uh, wait in any lines around the block uh, at your local Best Buy? Um, I didn't wait in lines around the block. Uh, my my family did, but what I did and what, what was interesting this year is uh, Target and Best Buy and a couple other companies, their Black Friday prices went online Thanksgiving morning around 3 a.m., so I actually set my alarm to get up at 3 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning and uh, get those Black Friday deals from the comfort of my own bed and went back to sleep. But that was the first time, uh, this year was the first time that Thanksgiving morning I did my Black Friday shopping. And uh, Tim, any uh, any Black Friday, Cyber Monday shopping, or did you sit this one out? Uh, I, I opted outside this year, David, <laughs> which uh, I did not buy a single thing this Black Friday or Cyber Monday, actually. Um, but it sounds like a lot of people did, so maybe opt inside should be the new hashtag. You know, I I tried. Uh, you know, I checked stuff both on Black Friday. I think I got some really kind of minor uh, Amazon deals, and I actually had better luck on Black Friday than on Cyber Monday. Um, but really, I don't know if it was just me, uh, just being anecdotal, but. The deals just weren't that amazing. A lot of the places I went to, it was like 30% off. And I mean, 30 is great, but it's not exactly a doorbuster. Uh, but, uh, you know, clearly it worked. Uh, it was also a big windfall for digital advertisers, uh, or at least the places where they spend their money, uh, such as Facebook. Digital advertisers spent 18% more on Black Friday this year and 14% more on Thanksgiving compared to last year, uh, according to a, a, another piece uh, from Chris Heine, uh, this time looking at ad roll data. Uh, Facebook was a big winner there, uh, seeing a, a tremendous jump uh, of above 10% uh, more than last year. Uh, so definitely a, a big day uh, and seeing, you know, to Jason's point, uh, a lot of advertisers and a lot of marketers really pushing into uh, Thanksgiving. But it's uh, it's behind us now, and we've got some, uh, I'm sure, a few more weeks of rampant consumerism as we lead up to Christmas. Uh, so should be interesting. Also, I'm going to let uh, Jason kind of talk through this one, because a story he uh, covered uh, just uh, just very recently on Adweek.com. AT&T finally announcing the details for DirecTV Now, its streaming service that does not require a cable box, a satellite dish, credit check, annual contract. So basically the, the real cord cutter package. Uh, sounds like it's going to be priced $35 per month introductory uh, with about 100 channels. Jason, how does this compare to, you know, the other kind of uh, cable and satellite packages that are on the market right now? Well, I think pricing is is similar aside from this this great kind of $35 uh, per, dollars per month deal that they're going to kick things off. And then they, they claim that everybody who uh, subscribes to that will be grandfathered in when the prices go up. But what the big incentive is here is that you don't need a cable box. You don't need a satellite. You don't need to make a, an appointment for cable and wait the three hours for them to come up. You don't need to pass a credit check, which is key. Uh, you don't need to be locked into a one- or two-year deal. So this is really AT&T's big play to land those uh, 20 million households in the U.S. that don't have a cable or a satellite subscription. 
I, I feel like one of the the big lines. I live in Alabama. It's a big football uh, and sports area, and I feel like live sports has always been kind of that last uh, line of defense uh, for people who are considering cord cutting. I mean, this is going to include a lot of those live sports broadcasts, right? It's going to include some, but probably not as many as you would like. Uh, ESPN is going to be in in the basic package, and that's always you know given given the amount of uh, of uh, subscriber fees that they charge every month. You know, people weren't quite sure if that was going to be the case. Uh, ABC, Fox, and NBC are included, and um, the NFL broadcasts on those networks and the sports broadcasts on those networks will be included as part of that, but it's only if you live in what are considered owned and operated markets, which are pretty much the major ones, Um, New York, L.A., Philadelphia. Uh, a lot of other parts in the country, you're not going to get that that live broadcasting. You're gonna you're gonna be at the mercy of kind of VOD the next day. Uh, and then even if you are in a market that is showing football, you will not be able to access it on your mobile device because Verizon has exclusive streaming rights uh, to NFL games. So, you know, it, it it it's a good first step, but it's not gonna have uh, it's not gonna have everything that that you're gonna want if you're a sports fan. So what will those of us who are not in major markets, what will we see? Will it just be like a traditional sports blackout if we try tuning into those those broadcasts? Well, if you are in if you are in a non ONO market, um, you're not going to have the live access to ABC, Fox, and NBC. Um, what you're going to you're going to have to rely on kind of the video on demand options for the next day. So there there isn't kind of the there's not the live. Uh, the, the live access to those channels in the kind of non-ONO markets at this point. They claim that they are working with the affiliates to try and expand that. Uh, there's no timetable on how, on how long that's going to be. The broadcasts decide you will get all the cable channels that everybody else will get regardless of where you are in the country. Uh, you'll have live access to those. So what else is kind of noticeably missing? Any any major networks that people might actually want to see in a package like this? Uh, yes. In fact, CBS, which is the uh, most watched network and also won last year in 18 to 49, is not part of this package, uh, nor, nor are they part of Sling TV, uh, PlayStation View, and some of the other streaming bundles that are available right now. So uh, direct, uh, AT&T says that they are still negotiating with CBS. Uh, CBS... Corp also includes Showtime and the CW, so those are not involved as, uh, as well. Those are the, the big networks that are missing. But beyond that, almost every cable network that you watch regularly is probably in one, in, in one of the four tiers that uh, DirecTV now offers. Is CBS sitting out largely just because they're pursuing their own kind of standalone streaming services? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's that that's the big thing. I mean, CBS has CBS All Access, and they want you to, to, to shell out the $5.95 per month to get uh, the, the streaming for that. And uh, so they don't have as much incentive to be involved in this because they, they, want, they want consumers to, to sign up to, for their own streaming service. Les Moonves uh, is always asked about this when he does earnings calls uh, quarterly, and he says, we're talking to everybody, and once we get a fair price, we'll be on board. But he seems to be in no hurry to, uh, to, to join everybody else. Uh, AT&T yesterday suggested that, uh, you know, demographically, since they're targeting millennials, uh, it may not matter that CBS isn't involved, since CBS is not necessarily the network that millennials turn to first. However, I would say that CW is one of the networks that they turn to first, and that's, you know, them not being a part of this could, uh, could be an issue down the line. 
Lauren, I forget, are you a cord cutter or do you have a traditional cable subscription? I am not a uh, cable subscriber. I have just kind of your basic uh, TV package with, you know, NBC, CBS, that sort of thing. But other than that, I rely um, solely on, on Netflix and Hulu and those online streaming services. So Could something like this win you over? Yeah, it depends. Um you know, kind of what's involved, what's included. I do, you know, the, I think the a la carte model is certainly interesting for me just because that's always been the big hang up in terms of me getting cable is that, you know, some stuff I'm interested in, but I certainly don't want, I don't want a package of 70 uh, TV channels that I'll only watch, you know, three or four of those. So I think being able to kind of pick your own options is a really, really big part of this that's interesting. So Jason, is this a turning point for the industry? Is this just kind of one more gradual step toward kind of this this fully streaming, fully digital, uh, more on-demand world? Or, I mean, how, how important is this uh, moment? Well, AT&T certainly thinks that this is, uh, this is incredibly important. And uh, I, I agree, but perhaps not for the same reasons. For me, the key to this deal is that if you are an AT&T wireless subscriber, you can watch as much DirecTV now as you want, and it will not it will not apply to your uh, your your data charges at all. So if you're an AT&T wireless subscriber, in essence, you are getting free access from a data uh, standpoint to stream as much as you want on the go. If you have any, you know, Verizon, if you have any other wireless carrier, you're going to incur data fees when you want to stream this outside your home. So, uh, you know, one part of this, AT&T has said that they're not, you know, they're not kind of of publicly make predictions on on how many subscribers they want. But one thing that they're hoping comes out of this is that they entice people who subscribe to this to also try some other AT&T devices. So whether that's subscribing to AT&T Wireless, whether... Whether that's uh, you know considering something else, so to me, I think it's key in that it is going to uh, give people more incentive to you know, kind of burrow into that, that AT&T world that maybe they didn't have before. Yeah, and that's a nice kind of counter to, uh, I believe it's T-Mobile that's been saying for a while that you got unlimited video streaming uh, as part of their package. So, you know, definitely a, a perk for the AT&T subscriber. Um, well, very fascinating, and uh, I encourage everyone to check out uh, Jason's story on this. Uh, just look up uh, AT&T Direct Now and Adweek, and I'm sure you'll find it. And keep an eye on the site for more updates uh, as it launches and as competitors, I'm sure, uh, continue to roll out similar products. Uh, moving on to another topic that will actually come up a bit more later in the discussion. Casey Neistat uh, is joining CNN, and he's bringing his app, uh, Beam, B-E-M-E. Uh, he's bringing it with him. Uh, Casey is is a personality that uh, we write about quite a bit because he overlaps a lot of the areas that Adweek covers. He is a uh, kind of a digital content star. You may call him a YouTube star, a video content creator. Uh, he works with a lot of brands and has created, a for many years, a, a wide range of kind of branded content and, and brand partnerships, uh, which were pretty innovative. Uh, Sometimes they work, sometimes they they don't, but they're always certainly interesting to check out. And now he is uh, he has shut down his uh, daily YouTube vlog 
uh, and uh, after about a billion views, and then shortly thereafter announced he is joining CNN. Next summer, uh, this, uh, I think, as yet unnamed media brand will be launching. Uh, He will be the executive producer. Uh, CNN says it's going to hire uh, dozens of additional producers, developers, designers, and content creators. Uh, So this is obviously a big push that CNN's making, and they obviously uh, are really going after Casey as kind of the face of the next phase of journalism and storytelling. Uh, it's a you know interesting transition. Tim, I feel like uh, you have been covering Casey for a, a long while now. Didn't you uh, talk to him in some of his earliest work with brands? I did. I interviewed him in 2013, uh, shortly after he'd done that Nike commercial. You probably remember where he uh, Nike approached him and said, can you make an ad for us? And he was like, sure. So they gave him a bunch of money, and all he did was basically travel around the world having fun uh, and filming himself doing fun stuff. And he came back and gave it to Nike, and I'm sure Nike probably did a double take, but then they ended up sort of loving it, and it's still online. I think it's called Make It Count. It's a Nike commercial from 2013. You can find it on YouTube. And, you know, uh, Casey is a fascinating dude. Like, he's, you know, the the CNN move is very interesting because I sort of think of Casey in some ways as, you know, videography slash branding's version of, of Bourdain almost. He's sort of this relentlessly curious person, really charming guy, loves to travel, uh, and, you know, it should be really interesting what he does over there. It sounds like they're, you know, they're hiring him to kind of become a, a content, you know, lead this sort of content creation division. And, you know, he's a, he's a great person for that. I mean, all of his work is, is really character driven and he's always a lead character in his stuff. And, you know, if that can translate into, you know, other content, other types of content for CNN, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it should be really interesting. He, he cares a lot about, about people and narrative, and he he really knows how to how to produce you know amazing stuff. And he's like you say, he's been doing this daily vlog for a year or so. I mean, that's just to be able to do that and create something fascinating every day has been like super cool. And and so many of his videos get a million views right off the bat. So you couldn't really hire uh, you know a more seasoned content creator guy. But you know at the same time, Casey's a bit of a renegade, and this is sort of a corporate move. So. It'll be interesting to see how he meshes with with that culture over there. Yeah, there's certainly a bit of kind of vice-like, uh, you know, feel to this move. I can see it uh, going in a lot of ways that CNN did not expect, uh, but you know, they, they have mentioned that this is a future-proofing move uh, that they really want to kind of for, ensure that CNN has a future beyond just being a 24-hour cable news uh, site. Uh, so in that regard, should be interesting. W- one of his projects that uh, he has launched several apps, he's, he's had several kind of creations uh, that he's brought to market with with varying results. One of the most fascinating was Beam, uh, which I mentioned a little bit ago. Beam, uh, for those not familiar, and it never really took off, I want to say it got about a million downloads, which isn't bad, uh, but not quite you know on the level of a Snapchat. Uh, but Beam... W- what was fascinating is it was the uh, real push against curated content, so the kind of the anti-Instagram, to the point where you couldn't even see what you were recording with your phone. Uh, I think in his original demos, uh, he had, you know, he would hold the camera, the phone to his chest uh, with the camera pointing out, and that's what would start the recording. So you can't even see it, and as soon as you're done, it publishes it out, and you have no control over kind of what it looks like or how good or bad it makes it look. Uh, Lauren, did you ever play with Beam? You know, I, I did. I remember when it kind of came out initially uh i wrote a story about it and downloaded it for a bit um but i think as as this move is kind of 
um, indicative of it, it's you know extremely hard to kind of stand out with this sort of thing. I probably downloaded it for 15 or 20 minutes um, and then deleted it. And I, you know, that kind of speaks to the difficulties in launching an app these days. If you're not a Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, it's really tough to stand out. And it'll be interesting to see how, you know, CNN kind of incorporates this team and technology that Casey has built in the past year. Yeah. And so he's going to be bringing uh, the technology. So they're, they're essentially shutting down Beam as a standalone app, um, which I'm sure will be sad for the people who are kind of the most intense power users. Uh, but it is going to be folded. The technology, the people uh, that work with Casey on that are going to be folded into CNN's uh, technology. So I don't know. Could be interesting to see what they come out with uh, from that app. It definitely was not kind of the next great thing, but I feel like it was, I've always thought of it as like an art project more than an actual app uh, because, it, you know, a, a social app, because it was really more about just this push, this performance art push against curated content. But at the same time, curated, curated content is, you know, kind of interesting and uncurated content, like raw feeds of people's lives while somewhat fascinating, maybe 10, 20 years ago is kind of, you know, just par for the course these days. Uh, so, it, it, you know, Definitely will be interested to see what happens to that. Jason, what's your take on whether this really will accomplish CNN's goal of kind of future-proofing itself uh, with, with a new approach to content? Well, it's really interesting because in the last year, CNN has really bulked up on the digital side. This is just the latest example of that in a way that neither Fox News nor MSNBC has done. And uh, I think, you know, CNN has a very you know robust kind of digital presence right now. And... If TV, you know, if, if it does kind of evolve beyond, you know, just the kind of the, the linear feed, CNN seems to be the only one of the three um, that is in a good position for that because the other the other two kind of don't even seem like they're trying a lot to me. So I give CNN a lot of credit for the work they've done in the last year on the digital side. Yeah, and, and you know, it was interesting to me seeing during the election that Brian Stelter, who uh, had a long history here uh, with one of our blogs, TV Newser, one of our most popular blogs, uh, and is now a senior media uh, correspondent for CNN. And he really became one of the kind of the more vocal personalities and, and a bit of a lightning rod. Uh, but it was good to see. That, that someone with that kind of interesting background uh, who was willing to wade into those debates and, and really create content uh, and discussions in a more modern way. Uh, you know, interesting uh, changes afoot for CNN. And they're certainly kind of in the crosshairs of President-elect Donald Trump. So I, I think everything they do will be pretty well scrutinized uh, over the next year. But I'm really excited to see uh, kind of what they, what they have in the works, especially with Casey on board. With that, we're going to move on to my favorite section of the show every week because I get to stop talking and listen to Tim Nudd tell us ads worth watching. What do you got for us this week, Tim? Well, so on our last podcast, we talked a lot about holiday ads. Now that was uh, mid-November. Uh, seems seemed a little early for that maybe, but vast majority or at least a, a ton of them had already come out then. But of course, there have been more since then. So I wanted to talk about two of those in particular, one of which just came out a few days ago. Um, it's it's the new H&M Christmas commercial, and it was directed by Wes Anderson. And it's, it's Wes's first ad in a couple of years, actually. He's done quite a few ads over the years, dating back to the 90s. Uh, but this one, totally unexpected. Did, we didn't know it was coming. Uh, it was done by uh, Adam and Eve DDB, the, the London agency that does so many Christmas commercials and almost single-handedly turned uh, the, the, the Christmas season in Britain into a kind of Super Bowl-like advertising showcase with its work for John Lewis. 
So Adam and Eve managed to, uh, they, they, they got involved with H&M and managed to get uh, Wes Anderson on board to do this really sweet holiday spot that um, I think is probably my favorite one uh, this year so far. It takes place on a train, which is, of course, a favorite setting for Wes, um, as fans of Darjeeling Limited will remember. Uh, but this train, it, it's a holiday-themed spot, obviously. Uh, the train's taking people home for the holidays, and it runs into bad weather. And Adrian Brody stars uh, as the train conductor. He was also in Darjeeling Limited, as well as some other Wes Anderson movies. Uh, so in this ad, he plays the train conductor, and he has to break the bad news to the passengers that they're going to be 11 and a half hours late to, to their destination, which pretty much ruins everyone's holiday. And so uh, we'll play a little clip of the ad here. Uh, you'll hear Adrian over the, over the train's PA system uh, revealing plans for a little holiday party on board the train. We're very sorry for this terrible inconvenience. My assistant porter, Fritz, and I will be serving a small complimentary Christmas brunch, including chocolate-flavored hot beverage with whipped topping, in the cafeteria section at the rear of the coach, starting in 20 minutes. Just to repeat again, Christmas brunch, 20 minutes, cafeteria section at the rear of the coach. Please do join us. Thank you. So as it turns out, um, Adrian and his, and his colleagues, in, in a bit of magical realism, uh, they whip up a, a Christmas car outfitted in all sorts of wonderful decorations in about 20 minutes, and they throw a party there, and the guest of honor is this kid who's riding on the train alone. And the final scene's really sweet and endearing. And of course, you know what I loved about this spot is it's Wes Anderson, right? So it's how it's exquisitely designed everything is, uh, both visually... You've got the tracking shots, you've got the wonderful color, you've got the somewhat stilted acting that, that Wes is so famous for getting from his, from his actors. Uh, but even down to like the audio, uh, in the audio clip you just heard, uh, you can hear Adrian Brody's voice changing a little bit uh, as, as the uh, clip went on, and that's because visually in the ad, uh, you're, we're panning from car to car where each person is presumably hearing the, his voice a little differently depending on what the speaker is like in that, in that car and the size of the room and so on. So it's really that attention to detail that's so amazing. And, uh, you know, I suppose when you hire Wes to do a commercial, you can probably expect something pretty top-notch, and, and they definitely delivered on this one. It, you know, I was just glad to see H&M. I, I have not been the biggest fan of a lot of the work they've done in the last year. I have, I am a generally a fan of their marketing. Uh, I thought a lot of the stuff they did, uh, the the pieces they did with Iggy Pop a year ago uh, were great. Uh, but uh, other than the She's a Lady ad, which I thought was fantastic, they've really produced a lot of stuff in the last year. Uh, I'm namely thinking of the Kevin Hart, David Beckham stuff that I just could barely sit through and really felt like they were kind of losing their their compass for what was cool and what was interesting. Uh, so this was a nice kind of refresher, a little palate cleanser uh, for kind of my take on H&M uh, advertising. Lauren, uh, how do you feel that H&M's brand is evolving in terms of what people think of when they think of H&M thanks to this marketing? Yeah, I think it. I think it's, it's changed significantly, um, at least the way I view it, and I'm sure lots of other people view it too, is, um, you know, you think of H&M as being kind of a cheap, clothing store at least in my mind it's very you know driven towards fast fashion and the stuff that you know has a shelf life of about a week um and they're really trying to to build it more into a you know standalone brand that you kind of associate the h&m uh name with i mean i think you know to this holiday campaign's point like even details um such as like in you know in a in a wes anderson movie 
children typically have a starring role in his movies, which is a big part of this campaign. And one, one little, little detail that I really enjoyed was the story of the of the little boy. So just trying to kind of, I think the, all these kind of campaigns add up to this bigger um, point that H&M is trying to kind of be known for in, in some of the holiday ads that make big brands successful at this time of year as well. Tim, uh, what other holiday ad did you want to talk about today? Uh, well, the other one I want to talk about quickly um, was the Apple Spot. Uh, it's called Frankie, and it came out uh, a week or so ago, maybe a little longer. We haven't, we didn't record last week, so we're just catching up on this one. Uh, it's it's the first Christmas ad I've seen that stars Frankenstein, um, who, as everyone knows, is usually more of a Halloween guy. Uh, so it starts off in this remote cabin and where Frankie, as he's referred to in the spot here, um, he's using his iPhone to learn how to sing a holiday song. And eventually he makes his way into the village where there's a Christmas tree lighting happening, and and everyone, of course, is a little wary of this guy. He's kind of an outsider, not to mention he's a monster from a 19th century novel. Um, But where his neck bolts normally are, he sort of screws in these little colored light bulbs, these Christmas lights, which is kind of an interesting visual and he starts to sing a song called Home for the Holidays. Um, but he loses his nerve a little bit. And we can play a clip from this one, too. So you can hear a little girl sort of helping him out. And soon the whole village is singing along. Because no matter how far away you roam, when you pine for the So yeah, it's a two-minute ad, and it's it's definitely got this sort of strange vibe to it. Um, it's a little bit haunting in parts, uh, but it's also kind of sweet, and it's got this theme of of uh, the the line at the end is "Open your heart to everyone," and it's this theme of this outsider kind of coming in, and and it's definitely got some political overtones. I would say, you know, we've we've spoken a little bit in the past couple of weeks about how brands are engaging with the political discourse and and the, and the divisiveness in the country. And, you know, holiday commercials are always a, an opportunity to, to promote the idea of unity and togetherness. Um, in fact, the, the tagline on the H&M spot has come together. So this is a pretty common theme every holiday. And, and I think this year it's uh, even more resonant considering how divided the country is and how difficult um, the election has been for so many people. So, yeah, I don't know. This, uh, Brad Garrett plays Frankie, and he he's certainly looks the part. He was the brother on Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, people probably know him from that. And he, he's, got, he's got a great look, and, and uh, I think Lance Accord directed, directed this spot, famous ad director. And, yeah, I mean, I thought it was definitely eye-catching. It, it made me a little uneasy the first couple, <laughs> couple times I watched it. Um, but it's probably the most memorable holiday spot Apple's done, I would say, since 2013 when they had the famous ad Misunderstood, which, which won the Emmy Award that year. The other great thing about this ad is that there's this layer of poignancy there because on Everybody Loves Raymond, Brad Garrett's dad was played by uh, Peter Boyle, who was Frankenstein in the Mel Brooks Young Frankenstein movie. So there's that other great connection there. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Very cool. Well, I mean, I, I think... Uh, misunderstood is sort of the high point of of Apple holiday marketing. It, it, that was the spot with the kid who seems to be absorbed in his cell phone during the holidays and ignoring everybody, and he seems to be very grumpy. And it turns out at the end of that spot that he's been secretly filming 
uh, all of his family t- to create this wonderful, heartwarming video of them that he shows at the end of the ad. So um, this one's definitely a bit more um, out there. You know, that was a very realistic story. This is obviously much more um, hyper real and, and hyper realistic or or magical or, you know, almost mythical. Um, but it's got a, yeah, it had a, some amazing visuals. And I think, you know, I was just chatting about it with some neighbors of mine here um, the other day and they loved it. And it seems to be um, striking a chord with people. And so the third ad you wanted to feature today is not really an ad you can watch so much as read about and maybe check out if you walk by it. Tell tell us about this one. Yes. um, So it's Spotify's new global out-of-home campaign, and it broke this week in the U.S., U.K., France, and Germany. And I love these ads there. They use um, listener data from the year to come up with some pretty fun headlines. So they've uh, it was created by Spotify's in-house creative team, and they kind of uh, scrolled through all their, their user data from the year to come up with some some interesting kind of bizarre data points that they feature in the headlines. So, for example, one of them reads, uh, Dear Person Who Played Sorry, the, the Justin Bieber song, 42, 42 times on Valentine's Day, what did you do? Uh, another one says, Dear 3,749 people who streamed, it's the, it's the end of the world as we know it on the day of the Brexit vote. Hang in there. So these are real data points from their from their users, and they are put to pretty fun use in in, in the ads. So there's a handful of of these executions that we've we've got up on uh, on AdFreak, which is our our creative blog over at AdWeek.com. So they're definitely worth worth checking out. You know, I think the the cool thing about this campaign is that it really kind of humanizes data. It uses it so well, and and this is obviously a tech brand that that can somehow seem. Uh, you know, removed a little bit or cold. A lot of tech brands have that that problem, but it's music, so people do funny things with music, and and this um, this campaign definitely captures a lot of that. Yeah, I've really been impressed with what Spotify has been doing with their marketing. Uh, we ran a, a very popular story earlier this year about their uh, Discover Weekly playlists, which, of course, have been tremendously popular. But what I loved about that is that they, the, the way that they recognized how popular those were uh, was the fact their servers practically melted once they launched that feature. And then they kind of had this internal moment of, oh, oh, hell, uh, people really like this stuff. Uh, and then they started mining Twitter for good examples of people saying, oh, if you know, if, if I could marry my Spotify playlist, I would, or Spotify gets me more than my wife or husband, uh, you know, and they they turn those into an ad campaign. Uh, so they're obviously really finding a nice vein here of real content, real data, and turning that into very clever marketing, um, and uh, which is uh, which is you know valuable for Spotify because they are certainly in a constant kind of battle uh, for relevance and and leading in that space uh, against Pandora and some of the other emerging audio players. Uh, so very cool one to feature. Uh, and thank you, as always, for wrapping up all that stuff, uh, Tim. These are a, uh, a great collection, and I encourage everyone, if you're not already, be sure to follow AdFreak, our creative blog that Tim mentioned. Uh, it's on uh, right on adweek.com. So thank you, as always. And now we're going to move on uh, to our big discussion of the week. This week we're talking about the hot list, AdWeek's list of, and that's actually several lists, of the hottest things going in three different categories, uh, which are uh, print, magazines, uh, television, and digital. 
And there's a lot of subcategories within those. The way this works is we kind of have two sets of lists. One is our editor's picks, where we meet as editors, writers, a big cross-section of people from across Adweek. We get together. We talk about which of uh, all these categories uh, we think should get uh, kind of the recognition for being the hottest of the year. And at the same time, we have reader polls live on adweek.com, where you and anybody else is welcome to log in and vote for your favorites. We had that open for quite a while. And then this week, uh, we unveiled our choices uh, for the editor's pick and then also our reader's picks. And it's fascinating seeing uh, where those overlap. We'll talk about a few of those. Generally, we don't necessarily agree, but often that's just because there are so many options. And a lot of the reader voting is driven by which of these brands or personalities really get out the vote. Uh, So you end up with a really fascinating cross-section of kind of what we are looking at this year and what our readers are looking at this year. I wanted to recap a few of the big names. Uh, We won't spend too long on these because they're uh, somewhat obvious. Our digital executive of the year is Mark Zuckerberg, and I really enjoyed our write-up because it highlights that uh, this is not saying he is the best digital executive of the year. It's not saying he is uh, running a a smooth and seamless operation over there at Facebook. They certainly had some very high moments and some very, very low uh, moments uh, in terms of their role in fake news and in uh, perpetuating a lot of the problems around the election. Uh, They also had some visibility issues. Lauren, how would you kind of summarize Mark Zuckerberg's year? Uh, Well, I think think that's how I I probably would summarize it is that, you know, Facebook has very much created its own mini planet that all of us live in, whether you like it or not. And um, they certainly have had a number of PR hits this year from, as you mentioned, some of the fake news stuff. And then at least in the marketing world, there was all of the back and forth about video metrics and our marketers getting the kinds of, you know, stuff that Facebook claims they are in terms of like watch time and how long people um, are spending on the site and that sort of thing. But in the end, you know, to be honest, I think just because it is uh, very much a, a planet Facebook type of mentality. All of those PR disasters just simply don't accumulate to anything that could really that could really stop uh, Zuckerberg and, and Facebook from moving full force into what what they have coming up next, which is stuff like drones and virtual reality and getting the um, rest of you know a good portion of the world connected to the internet and all of those kinds of bigger initiatives. I don't see fake news stopping Facebook from doing that. Yeah, certainly. I, when it came down to the discussion of who should uh, take this honor, it's very hard to find anyone else that's operating at the kind of level that Mark Zuckerberg is in terms of his public visibility, his uh, the, the effect that his operation is having on marketers, on the world, uh, on the election. So, uh, you know, one of those where we're not exactly saying he was a perfect figure that everyone should emulate and that everything he did was the right decision, but he was definitely uh, at the you know, at the, the the crossroads of kind of all digital discussions this year. Uh, another media visionary who really is at a crossroads uh, was Jeff Bezos, uh, founder of Amazon, and then also the owner of The Washington Post, which was a, uh, a huge, uh, I think we also named it the hottest uh, digital media company, uh, digital publisher uh, for their role in the election cycle, their, their output of content, the quality of their content, the, the number of scoops they landed this year, uh, really tremendous operation. And Bezos uh, has had a really fascinating role in that and in shaping the media industry. Uh, so I certainly inc- encourage everyone to check out our Media Visionary of the Year profile of Jeff Bezos. Uh, and Digital Creator of the Year uh, was Casey Neistat. So I'm not going to spend much more time since we already talked about him, but kind of interesting that we picked him uh, several months before uh, this news came out this week about him moving to CNN. Uh, But I feel like that was a 
good sign that we made the right choice in terms of who which content creator was really kind of at the at the fore of his industry. Jason, I want to have you talk about some of the TV industries. Uh, tell us first about who uh, landed the TV Executive of the Year and why. Uh, so this year's TV Executive of the Year is John Landgraf, who is the uh, CEO of FX Networks. And unlike what we were saying about Zuckerberg, who you know was maybe picked for good and bad reasons, uh, John Landgraf had uh, had an incredible year at FX. Uh, really, especially to uh, for the uh, the success of the People versus O.J. Simpson which uh, we also picked as the hottest show of the year. And, you know, it, it's hard to uh, to remember this now, but when this was first announced, this really sounded like something that could have just been a mess. I remember sitting down exactly a year ago, FX had a special early screening for a couple people, and I, I turned to my seatmate and I said, this is either going to be one of the best things I've ever seen or a complete disaster. Uh, and it turned out to be one of the best. But uh, So not only was it a critical hit, but it was... Uh, it was uh, it was a commercial hit. It had a uh, 12.6 million viewers per week. But he also had other successes throughout the year. Uh, Atlanta, which is this terrific new comedy from Donald Glover, was, is already FX's most watched comedy. Had uh, the best comedy debut for a basic cable network in a couple years. So, uh, so in addition to having these uh, commercial hits, he's had a, a launch a lot of other new shows that have been critical successes. Uh, baskets. Uh, better, thi- better things. Uh, so he's really had a great year on on all fronts. So he he was a, a great pick for us for exec of the year. And the point that he made in our profile is that he's also kind of most proud of the fact that this is uh, really showing what ad supported networks can do in this world where everybody's talking about Netflix and everybody's talking about HBO. And you know, look at look at what uh, an ad supported network and you know, look at the showing that they can have. They had uh, they were number two behind. HBO in both Emmy nominations and Emmy wins this year, which is terrific. And our cover star uh, this year is also from the TV category. This is our news anchor of the year, Megyn Kelly. Uh, tell us, uh, she obviously was kind of at the center of a lot of the debates around the election and this rift within the conservative and Republican movements. Uh, what was some of the thinking behind uh, choosing Megyn Kelly for this honor? Well, I think uh, uh, there were several fronts where, uh, you know, where Megyn was because the, the news anchor of the year, you know, to, to your point, you know, Certainly, her involvement in you know kind of kicking off everything, uh, everything to do with Trump from that first question of the debate, which kind of launched her you know front and center, and kind of was the first person I feel like the Trump targeted during the uh, the presidential campaign. Uh, you know that continued. You know he would kind of circle back to her every few months. Uh, but also, you know, in addition to what she meant kind of in the political environment, what she meant to Fox News was huge this year on two fronts. The first was, I feel like her, um, you know, with Roger, A- Roger Ailes, who finally had to leave the company uh, after all the sexual har- harassment claims against him, her really coming forward and and not defending him and, you know, talking um to the higher ups there, um, you know, about her own uh, experiences with him and, and what he had done to her, you know, really was kind of the final the final nail in uh, in the coffin as far as Rogers' uh, tenure at Fox News. So you have that, and then beyond that, there's the big million dollar question, or I should say, twenty million dollar question of. Will she, when her contract is up next year, will she re-sign at Fox News? Will she go up with up? Uh, will she go elsewhere? That's really the big kind of TV media question next year, and um, you know, also kind of the the future of Fox News is really at stake. Whether 
whether it's built around Megyn Kelly or it's you know built around somebody else. So it's uh, it's really interesting. Not only it's a really interesting pick not only for what's going on with her this year, but what's going to go on with her next year when she decides uh, what her next move is. Yeah, and and I I remember the, I don't remember the politician, but there was a big Trump supporter uh, basically saying that you know when the new regime comes, when Trump wins the election, just wait till you know just wait till you see what happens to you, Megyn Kelly, in this very threatening manner. And it got me thinking, you know, well that's uh, dirty pool to be talking about anybody that way. I, uh, I I am really fascinated to see the role she plays because she, you know, she certainly is no no friend of Trump's uh, and is really willing to call him out. Uh, but uh, in this kind of new world order, it'll be interesting to see the role she plays in that in that dynamic. A- another kind of polarizing figure, but a very different one uh, is Samantha Bee our TV creator of the year. Um, and I know there was a lot of really interesting discussion about Samantha and the role that she plays in kind of the furthering this this discussion at a time where it's been really fine to ha- been very hard to find the the kind of next John Stewart. Uh, and I know you've been a big believer in Samantha, uh, Jason. W- tell me about the, the thinking behind choosing her for creator of the year. Well, I think what was amazing about Samantha B is, you know, you think about how much we've been talking about late night the past couple of years with all the turnover there. David Letterman, David Letterman retiring, Stephen Colbert coming in and, and taking longer than anybody would have guessed to find his footing there. And then the same thing with Jon Stewart stepping down and Trevor Noah taking over. And, you know, he's had he's had some growing pains as well, although I also think that he's come into his own uh, during the election. But Samantha B, I I wouldn't say came out of nowhere because we all have known her from her you know, decade or plus on The Daily Show. But I felt from the first episode of, of her show, Full Frontal, when it premiered earlier this year, she was just this force of nature and just bringing this new voice to late night. Yes, at the time, she was the only female voice in late night, but it was just this different perspective. It was something that had been lacking, you know, yes, since uh, since since Jon Stewart left and maybe, you know, the, the Colbert report, Stephen Colbert left. But she really instantly shook up late night and, and she's just been this force of nature the whole year, you know, in, in a way, she was essential viewing all year in a way that Stephen Colbert and Trevor Noah and the other late night people were only sporadically. You know, absolutely Seth Meyers later on, you know, he, he's been great, you know, later in the later in the uh, election cycle. And some of the other ones have come into their own. But Samantha B has has been there from the start. And we wrote uh, extensively earlier this year. I did a cover story about the uh, the big changes that uh, Turner's doing with with TNT and TBS. And you know, TBS had a, a pretty major content overhaul, and and she was kind of the 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 first uh, the the first kind of big swing that they took, and they hit it out of the park with her. Well, I definitely encourage everyone to check out our list of the television hot list for 2016. Uh, so look that up on adweek.com, and uh, th- we've got links to uh, several of these profiles that we've discussed and the list of all the choices in television, of which there are many. And uh, always interesting to see, again, what the readers picked uh, in contrast to what uh, we selected. But I wanted to move on to digital. Again, a massive category with tons of different uh, uh, topics within there for for us to select from. I'd say kind of the premier uh, category, though, is the hottest digital brand. And for, I believe, the second year in a row, it is Snapchat. Lauren, tell us about why Snapchat remains kind of the hottest digital brand. Yeah, I mean, Snapchat had a a huge year this year. Uh, Everything from 
um, their API launching, which had been kind of rumored in the works for a while, which is you know basically opening up the adverti- their advertising business to the masses anyway, um, to things like Discover, which got a lot of publicity from publishers and trying to you know how media brands think about publishing content has definitely changed this year uh, in terms of like planning specifically for platforms like like Snapchat and. Even stuff like watching video um, vertically still seemed to be a fairly big trend this year. Um, to obviously the the you know they spun off into Snap Inc. Uh, started selling spectacles, which is kind of their first move into hardware with these video recording classes that are pretty cool. Uh, and all of that is to kind of say that they you know it's it's uh, pretty well speculated at this point that they're going to be IPOing uh, come next year, and which will be obviously quite quite buzzy and and pretty quick uh, I think quicker than a lot of people anticipated they would be uh, but to do that they had to create this new name uh, snap Inc and that's kind of where you get into now they have separated um, snap Inc is the parent company and underneath that you've got snapchat and spectacles so they're you know kind of diversifying all, all of their products out there to be a bit more comprehensive when they do IPO yeah, it sounds like they got kind of an earlier start than Google, which uh, you know eventually backed itself out into the Alphabet uh, kind of larger company to have each of these products underneath. And so, I kept, personally, I kind of wondered if that's what drove Snapchat's decision to to give itself more of a a palatable and and scalable structure. Uh, Another one that uh, that got a lot of discussion, and we spent a lot of time debating, although I think there was clear consensus, was the hottest startup, uh, which ended up being Slack. And that's one we certainly all use. I think, if not most journalists, uh, certainly a lot of journalists use these days, a lot of different operations. Uh, I remember in my, in my years with an agency, I would have killed to have a collaborative software as good as Slack. Tim, you and I have been working together for about 10 years, and I feel like we've been trying to use just about any technology we can find to coordinate with each other, with our writers, with our freelance. And and I, I feel like Slack was really the first one to, to crack that nut in a really effective way. What have you thought of Slack uh, since you've started using it for the last, I believe, two years or so? Well, yeah, collaboratively, it's wonderful. We used to, you know, I used to use all sorts of third-party chat software, and I was trying to integrate AIM and GChat and these other things into sort of one interface, and and it was just a pain in the neck. And the great thing about Slack is. Not only can you chat with someone, you can also share media really easily. It becomes kind of a file management system in a way. And then it's also just got a great brand voice. You know, it integrated Giphy. Uh, You can type in, you know, you can type in Giphy and search for GIFs and and sort of amuse your coworkers that way. And I don't know. The advertising it's done has been pretty cool and and really sort of young. And and it's just got a great, it's got great functionality. It's got a great brand voice and brand perception. And from what I understand, it's growing like crazy. So uh, sky's the limit for these guys, probably. I believe it was actually kind of like born out of an accident, too. Um, that You know, the founder didn't expect for it to create this collaborative software. I think it was actually a mobile game um, initially. And when you think about it in that aspect, it's, you know, kind of a game version of work software. So I think that's kind of why you've seen it take off so much. But I think it was kind of an, an accidental 
success. And they are certainly getting some competitors now. Most notably, Microsoft has launched a, a similar product line, which Slack fired back uh, with a pretty snarky uh, full-page ad, kind of quote-unquote welcoming uh, Microsoft to this industry. That that was a bit of a polarizing thing. Some people thought that was a really smart move. Some people thought uh, that they were maybe uh, kind of getting a little big for their britches. Uh, but uh will be a fascinating space. I just have to say that Slack is one of the few, as someone who used just about any kind of project management or collaborative software I could get my hands on uh, for several years, uh, this is the first one to really kind of solve it uh, right out of the gate. And I was uh, very impressed with it. And I'll be really, uh, you know, it's one I recommend to businesses uh, kind of uh, wholeheartedly when they ask me about what software we use. And I'm always surprised when I talk to people who aren't using it at all, because it's just one of those where I cannot picture a world in which we, we did not have that anymore to communicate in real time. Uh, so will be an interesting one to watch. Uh, one category, two categories that were actually very easy this year were hottest digital obsession and the hottest mobile game. Lauren, what did we pick for both of those categories? Uh, Pokemon Go for both of them uh, for kind of obvious, obvious reasons. I think, um, you know, they it obviously had tons and tons of press and traction and seemed to kind of take off like gangbusters uh, over the summer. And, you know, the whole idea being that, Pokemon Go kind of brought uh, augmented reality finally to the masses and had this kind of watershed moment for augmented reality. And, you know, I guess it, it speaks to you could, you know, when it was really hot this summer, you could walk down the street and see teenagers um, in any given neighborhood trying to find the the landmarks and stuff to unlock different content within the games and just kind of seemed to take out take up uh, out of nowhere, which is why we we picked it for both categories. And and even when we were debating this, I believe two months ago, it was clear that Pokemon was already in decline. You know, the usage dropped off. I think you, you see this happen anytime you have something really break out and explode. We even had a Twitter chat around that time about these these kind of fads and when something sticks around versus when it just flares up and then goes away. I'm still playing it a lot, but a lot of that's driven by my kids are obsessed with it. And it's a great tool in the sense of getting them out and exploring new parts of the city and getting them walking around. To them, it has never gotten old. It continues to be something that they are just fascinated with. Uh, so while I doubt it'll it'll make the list next year, it was very much a moment of 2016 thing. Uh, and this was one of the only categories where our readers agreed with us wholeheartedly, and we actually matched up uh, the our picks and the readers' picks. One that caused a lot of debate uh, internally, uh, and I think was one of the most interesting discussion, was the hottest gadgets and gizmos. Uh, this is one that includes your your smartphones, your e-readers, your cameras. Just about anything can fall into this. And in the end, we chose the Amazon Echo. That's something I know that we've even talked to you specifically about, uh, Lauren, as an Echo owner. Uh, and it really came down between that and the iPhone 7, uh, and which sold tremendously well, maybe not as well as, as some previous iPhones, uh, but it had a lot of debate around it. In the end, our readers picked the iPhone 7 uh, as kind of the hottest uh, you know, gadget. Uh, Echo, I believe, came in third in the readers' poll. But I think that, that the consensus internally here at Adweek was just while the iPhone 7 is a good new version of the iPhone, that the Amazon Echo is kind of at the forefront of this new movement of voice activated. Uh, it, it's been a while since we checked in on you with your usage of the Echo. Lauren, uh, kind of how's it going for you? And, and do you do you still feel it's a really kind of a, a cutting it, you know, a, 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 that it's taking us somewhere interesting in the tech space? You know, it's interesting. I kind of keep finding new uses for it. So meaning now, I you know, you can hook up um, the Uber app 
to it, for example, so you don't have to pull out your smartphone if you're at home and want to um, get a ride. You can just ask Alexa, hey, um, Alexa, book a, you know, can you get me an Uber ride? And she does it. And I think we had talked, uh, there was a big campaign that Alexa and, and Echo did a few months ago where it was kind of a hundred um, use cases for it. And I, I can't say I've, you know, used a hundred things so far, but it is kind of like this device where you just keep finding new little Easter eggs and stuff to, to unlock, which I think is going to be a huge part of what separates it apart from Google Home and Siri and, and Apple Home and all of that uh, next year and the foreseeable future. And Google's ads uh, that are promoting their device of a similar nature have been very similar to those Amazon ads, too. It's basically just here are these little case studies with a kind of little funny joke at the end of, oh, then I guess I'll need this, too. Uh, you know, so it's kind of funny that they uh, Amazon, if nothing else, maybe that's the obvious marketing tech, but they got there first. Um, so so good for them. Uh, one more category I just wanted you to talk about, because I have to admit, I pretty much sat out this uh, conversation uh, when we deliberated these, is the hottest celebrity in social media. Uh, we picked Chrissy Teigen, which seemed to be a consistent answer among the staffers who pay attention to such things. Lauren, can you tell me, as someone who does not follow really any of these uh, celebrities, uh, why Chrissy Teigen and what makes her better, different uh, than kind of the the litany of other uh, uh, celebrities out there? Yeah, so we had a, a long list of uh, people that were being considered and that we were looking at. And I think what kind of sets Chrissy apart is that she, you know, on one hand, does, she ha- she's had uh, for years a very uh, fairly successful uh, fashion and modeling career. But she does seem to kind of, ha- you know, have socials given her a new platform to kind of uh, talk about issues, whether it's food. She has a cooking book out and has really um, built a brand around her food personality, To Obviously, this year she was quite vocal in um, the elections. And I think in both, in all of those cases, she kind of approaches social with a very down-to-earth uh, tone that maybe maybe you didn't expect or that you didn't know uh, she had. Um, she's just very personable and, and seems like someone that you would want to hang out with, at least I would, <laughs> uh, based on her social social accounts. So kind of the um, not only using it for personal stuff, but kind of building up this personality and brand through Instagram and Twitter that's been kind of interesting to watch. Great. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, I will certainly be following her now. And uh, and it's interesting to see someone who you know is not just known for their image and their and kind of celebrating themselves. Uh, so g- always good to hear uh, the difference between some of those celebrities. We're going to move on to uh, emails from listeners. Uh, don't forget you can email us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And we will check out your email, answer your questions, and maybe even feature them on an upcoming episode. We actually have some fan mail this week. And so I just want really wanted to thank Meryl from Boston who wrote in and said, I've been constantly refreshing my podcast feed for the past few days waiting for episode 13, which made me realize I should send you an email to thank you for making a very cool and entertaining podcast. Meryl says she's a graduate student studying advertising. Uh, She is an intern at a progressive brand agency, and she has been trying to keep up with ad news 
and uh, really f- enjoys that this podcast helps her participate. Uh, I, I enjoyed a line where she says, even if it's just me talking to myself and agreeing with what you are saying. So uh, always glad to hear from people actually listening and enjoying it. And she ends her note by saying, so thank you for entertaining me, helping me keep up with current news and reminding me on a weekly basis why I decided to quit my job and go to grad school and study advertising. So I don't know if that's, uh, we'll, we'll find out in the long run whether that's good or bad for you, Meryl, but we are at least glad that we've helped you uh, justify your decision. And we certainly appreciate you and everyone else listening. Thank you for those. And again, send us a note at podcast at adweek.com. We love to hear from it. Uh, we have got several really exciting things coming up soon with the, as the year winds down, we're going to be naming the agency of the year. It's actually three different agencies of the year. We have our U.S. agency of the year, global agency of the year, and what we call the breakthrough agency of the year. The, the one that really uh, just kind of broke through to a new level with their creative and uh, all three of those are really fascinating picks and will be a lot of fun to discuss uh, next week. And we've also got the ads of the year, uh, which is Tim's Roundup, uh, which some of us uh, kick in some thoughts. But in the end, uh, he really is the arbiter of the best ads of the year. Uh, that'll be coming out in, I believe, two weeks and always a fascinating list. And uh, I've, I've gotten a sneak peek at, at some of the choices. And I think it's a really fun and diverse uh, look back at what we had in 2016 creatively. So stay tuned for that on adweek.com and on the podcast. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. And uh, please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from. Those reviews are really important to us because they help uh, us reach new audiences and help new listeners discover the podcast. So thank you to those who have reviewed it. If you have not, please uh, take a moment to leave a review. Thank you as always, and we will talk to you next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.